The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse number 12 down to verse number 26. Just by reference, there is a pink-colored note sheet in your bulletin there, and a lot of the verses we're looking at will be on there, and a few we'll actually turn to uh, just for the sake of length. So we'll read together Acts chapter 1, verse 12, down to verse number 26. And the Word of God says... Then they, that's the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's ask for God's blessing again, shall we? Father in heaven, as we open the word of God now, we pray Oh, God, that you would speak to all of us. Father, you know every need and every concern. Father, you know where every single one of us stands before you this day. And Father, we pray that my voice would fall silent at the edge of the pulpit, but that you would speak to every single heart, that we would hear what you would say. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of introduction, I want you to notice the disciples' very unique situation. I want you to notice the activities that are taking place in that upper room. 
First of all, there is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and wait there, and that is precisely what they do. In the first part of verse 14, they are there with one accord. There is a spiritual unity of heart and mind amongst those 120 persons. Notice also that there is a devotion to prayer. They were devoting themselves to corporate prayer. Notice also in verse 16 that there is a correct understanding of inspired Scripture. He says, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, and so on. He also says in verses 16 and 21 that there is a correct understanding and a correct application of Scripture to their current situation. There is prayer to the Lord in verse 24 regarding their choice of the disciple that he had chosen to replace Judas. Now those attitudes and those actions displayed by the disciples and recorded by Luke, they all suggest that the Spirit of God was clearly at work among them. The Holy Spirit was influencing them to godly attitudes and godly behavior. Consider for a second, is it possible to obey Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit's influence? And we would say no. The Bible says very clearly in John, or Romans chapter 3 that without God's intervention, we have no desire whatsoever for God. Is it possible to have unity among 120 persons praying as they were without the Holy Spirit's work leading and guiding them? And the answer, again, would be no, that's not possible. Is it possible to recognize the place and application of Scripture as they did without the Spirit of God's leading? Because as Jesus said, the Spirit of God will lead you into all truth. So how is it possible if he is not at work amongst them? So we, would, we could see just from looking at the text that the Spirit was clearly influencing them to godly behavior. He was working among them. But if you know your Bible and you know the very next verses that we're reading in Acts chapter 2, you're all going to say, but hold on, time out. The Holy Spirit doesn't come. He is not poured out until after these events. So how do we understand this? Well, John Calvin, writing about 400 years ago, said that the disciples received the grace of His Spirit sprinkled on them from the time of Jesus' ascension until Pentecost. That was the way he understood. If you go back to the book of John, chapter 20 and verses 22 and 23, you can see there where Jesus breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so a few people have taken it that in some form they received the presence of the Holy Spirit among them from that time until the Spirit of God is poured out on Pentecost morning. Another scholar by the name of Lenski, R.C.H. Lenski, argued that the Lord Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit as a replacement to his own earthly present from his final appearance and ascension until the Spirit was poured out in full in power at Pentecost. So we can understand their unique situation as living and functioning with the presence of the Holy Spirit among them. Notice I didn't say in them. I said among them. And there is a difference. The Spirit of God was very clearly at work 
leading them and teaching them and drawing them to pray and so on. So the disciples, you have to understand this, are in a very, very unique situation. In some senses, they are like the Old Testament saints, but yet different. But unlike the Old Testament saints, they have seen and witnessed Jesus' life and death and resurrection. In Luke 24, verse 45, it says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. They've heard the gospel message. They have believed. But they have yet to receive the poured out Holy Spirit. Their unique situation will never be repeated. They were in a very unique time and setting. You say, how long was that for? If I do my math correctly, it was about seven days. If you take... Passover is day one and Pentecost is day 50. We know Jesus was in the tomb for three days. We know that he was among the disciples for 40 days. And we know Pentecost happens at day 50. So that's three plus 40 is 43. That leaves you seven days between the time that Jesus was ascended up to glory and Pentecost happened. So for seven days, these men and women are gathered in that upper room and things are happening with, that very clearly describe the work of the Spirit of God among them. Okay, that will never happen again. We as believers and every believer from that point onwards receive the Holy Spirit as we are converted. If you look in your notes, you should have uh, Ephesians 1 verse 13. The Bible says, In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We do not accept what some would say that there is two baptisms of the Spirit. There's nowhere found in Scripture. We believe in one baptism of the Holy Spirit that feels and seals us the moment we believe. Now, these disciples, like I said, they're in a unique situation. From everybody from that time onwards... We receive the Spirit of God. We can clearly see the Spirit of God at work in us even before we take that step of faith and we turn fully to Christ and repent of sin and trust in Jesus because the Spirit of God is opening our minds and our hearts to understand the truth of the gospel message. He's already at work. And when we receive him, when we receive Christ for salvation, he fills and seals us. And the idea of a seal is like a branding iron burning a mark into us that can never be removed. So the Spirit of God present in the believer is a mark for everybody to see that we belong to Jesus Christ. Okay. Having said that, there is, their situation in some ways is similar to ours. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, in their situation, they were looking for and expecting a great revival, the last great revival amongst God's people that had been promised from ages before. Take your Bibles, stick your finger in the book of Acts, and turn over to the book of Joel and chapter 2. If you want to know how to find Joel, you find Daniel. It's a big book. Then you find Hosea's after that. It's a bit bigger. And then you find the book of Joel, just a couple chapters in there. And there's a great prophecy of the Old Testament that shows you uh, exactly what's about to happen. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. The Word of God says this, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all... That's not the right verse. Joel verse 2, verse 28. 
28. Sorry about that. Verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Peter, on Pentecost morning, takes that text in two different sections and preaches it to explain what's happened. This revival promised by Joel and some of the other Old Testament promises prophets is something that the whole nation was looking forward to. It was a great revival. And so they were looking to see what God was going to do when he poured out his spirit on all flesh and there would be a great renewal, a great revival amongst the nation of Israel. But sadly, as we know from reading the book of Acts, you're going to find out very quickly that the vast majority of the nation of Israel would turn away from and would reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel would go primarily to the Gentiles. What about us? We're here in Noble Park in 2019. We have been praying and we're going to keep on praying that God would bring revival. Real, biblical Holy Spirit revival in this church and in this community and hopefully one day to the, all the nation. And so what we look at and we see what they're doing, we can see how they are preparing for that coming day. They're looking forward to when the Spirit of God will be poured out and they're making preparation and they're doing things that prepare them for that great revival. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to pray... And I'm going to keep on praying for revival amongst us and amongst our community. We can be doing the very same things that they're doing. Our situation, in that sense, lines up with theirs. The difference is, and you already figured this part out, is that we have the Spirit of God. We have all been filled. Those of us who know Christ as our Savior have been filled and sealed with the Spirit of God. But there is still need for revival amongst us. There is still need for a wholesale turning toward Christ, a renewed deep and love for Christ, a renewed zeal for the gospel, a renewed zeal to go out and preach the gospel to all the nations, that we would see this church filled up and overflowing and all the churches around filled to the overflowing with men and women who have turned to faith in Christ. I put in your bulletin a long article. It's actually a story more than an article, but it's, an, it's kind of a recounting and an explanation of a great prayer revival that swept through New York City in, I believe, 1857, and it spread way beyond that into other cities around the United States. And it started with one man posting up some signs that said, Come and pray. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. And when we finish the service, take some time to read that little account in the afternoon. It will encourage you greatly to keep praying for revival. So first of all, we want to look at their obedience to Christ's command. Secondly, we want to look at the spiritual unity among the believers. And thirdly, we want to look at their devotion to corporate prayer. And most likely next week, what we'll do is look at the fourth one, which is the bulk of the passage. And that's their submission to and the application of Scripture into their lives. 
So first of all, they prepared for revival by obedience. Jesus commanded them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, what do we see? They returned to Jerusalem and entered the upper room. The disciples obeyed their Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is our Lord Jesus Christ. I've taken the, made the habit in my writing my notes is to put Lord with a comma, then Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ after that to emphasize the fact that that word Lord is not a name, it's a title. It describes to us our submission to him and the necessity for our obedience to him. Jesus Christ is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is in absolute authority over them and he is an authority over us. He must be obeyed despite the risks and obstacles and difficulties. They returned to Jerusalem knowing the risks and the dangers. They knew the elders, the rulers, the mob were all there. Peter knew. Remember Peter in the story outside uh, Caiaphas's palace? He's standing at the fire warming his hands. He's trying to sort of keep to the back so no one can kind of see him. And a young servant girl points him and says, You're one of them. You were with Jesus. Your speech gives you away. You're a Galilean. And he kept saying, oh, no, 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 I don't know him. Uh, Literally, he called down oaths and curses saying, may God strike me dead if I know that man. He knew that she was there in the city. They knew that those people who had seen them with Jesus were all there. They had reason to fear, and yet they obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ. They could not expect to receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit poured out while continuing in disobedience to him. Some of you may remember the Old Testament story of King Saul. And King Saul was chosen by God to be the first king over his people, Israel. In the very beginning of his reign, Samuel told Saul, Wait for seven days and I will come and offer the offering and then you will go out and strike the Philistines. And Saul disobeys the word of the Lord, not just once, but repeatedly. And the Bible tells us that Samuel spoke to Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22. And the word of God says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Brothers and sisters in Christ, blessing will not follow continual habitual disobedience. Revival will not come. Brothers and sisters, while we still give greater place to our own desires and fears than to Christ. What we share at the Lord's table, not my will, but yours be done. Following Jesus Christ as disciples of Christ is stepping right in behind him and saying, Father, just like Jesus, not my will, yours be done. And the disciples went back to Jerusalem. They obeyed the word of the Lord. Obedience to God's revealed will is of greater importance than all the plans that we can make to offer him the greatest sacrifices in the world if we refuse to obey. There's no blessing. God desires our obedience first and foremost. The Lord Jesus set the greatest example for us on the cross. He obeyed his Father to the very end, draining the cup of God's wrath to the last bitter, painful drop. 
In Hebrews 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, although Christ was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, that doesn't mean he was like me as a little boy, where I started off very disobedient and I got progressively less disobedient over time, although I had some serious relapses as time went on. All you have kids, you know exactly what that's like. Jesus was always obedient to his father. But he experienced the full measure of obedience in the things that he suffered. See, the Father called him to do so many things, and Jesus obeyed every single one of them. But it wasn't like, son, take your leisure. Son, sit around in the shade. Son, do all these easy things. He said, son, go and offer yourself on a cross. Son, be willing to be cut off from me for a time. Son, be willing to face the most extreme, intense, emotional, spiritual, soul-suffering that anyone can even conceive of and beyond in obedience to me. And the Lord Jesus said, yes, I will go, not my will, but yours be done. The Bible says in Philippians 2, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' obedience left him hanging on a cross. Jesus' obedience was the means by which God paid the penalty for our sin. God purchased our salvation by Christ's obedience. His blood. His blood. Think about that. His lifeblood was shed for me and for you, and it's what washes us clean from the filth and the muck and the stain of sin. By obedience, we are set free. Obedience requires, and there's a couple little notes to fill in your note sheet there. Obedience requires, number one, putting off the old man and putting off sin. Brother and sister, listen. What area of your life, what habit, what sin must be put away from you that you're refusing to? And as surely as I'm convinced that the Spirit of God speaks and testifies to the heart of every man, if you're sitting here listening to that, I am sure that there's something that the Spirit of God is saying to you, you need to deal with this. You need to put it off. You need to put it away. Turn and repent and put away that sin. Clean out your life of the sins, the habits, the weights that are hindering your obedience and our obedience. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, listen, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I can't read those verses. We're thinking about guys like Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and some of my, I admit it, some of my heroes. They're dead men, but they're great men. And gathered and seated like in a great amphitheater, a great sports stadium. They sit on the sidelines and they're watching and they're cheering. And way at the end of the race, standing just beyond the finish line, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, come and obey. And I fix my eyes on him. I throw away the sins and the weights that so easily hinder me. And I run down there. And as I run, I'm convinced that, pardon me if it sounds a little weird, that Charlie Spurgeon's going, yeah. They're watching. 
in a certain sense, they're cheering us on. But brothers and sisters, we have to throw aside those weights. We have to throw off the things, the habits, the sins that hinder us from running in obedience and set our eyes firmly on Christ and run. These disciples set their eyes firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. They went back to Jerusalem and waited for the Spirit to come. Secondly, obedience requires putting on the new man, putting on Christ. Take your Bibles again and flip over to the book of Colossians. A couple of books over, Colossians chapter 3. And we will read from verse number 12 to verse number 17. And the Word of God says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are to put on Christ. And you know what, beloved? That's not a once-only thing. It's a daily thing. It's a daily conscious decision to put on those things, to put on Christ. It's a conscious decision to walk by the Spirit that we might live pleasing to the Lord. It's a conscious decision to put off the old man and put on Christ. Brothers and sisters, follow Christ's example. Obey the Lord. Cry out to him for strength. That obedience doesn't come in our own strength. We don't have the strength to do it. It comes as we put our hope and our trust in Christ, as we lean fully on him and we depend on him for the strength to obey. The disciples return to Jerusalem to wait in obedience. They and we prepare for revival by living in obedience, by striving for ever greater obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we prepare for revival with spiritual unity. I want you to notice in verse 14, the first part of the verse, it says, All these, speaking of the disciples, were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer and so on. But it says, with one accord. All these with one accord. The word is homothimidon, and it means one mind, one purpose, and one heart. They were all unanimous in their devotion to corporate prayer. They all shared the same purpose and the same intention. See, how difficult is that? It's very difficult. That's why I'm convinced the work of the Spirit of God was going on among them at that point to draw all their hearts together and with one united purpose they got together. When was the last time 120 of us got in the same room and all agreed on one single purpose? Not very often, is it? we're, We're a different bunch of folks. And let's face it, they're just the same. There's carpenters, there's fishermen, there's tax collectors, there's military zealots, there's a whole different host of people from different backgrounds, different education levels, different cultures in a sense. And they're all together and they have one purpose, one thing in mind. They come together and not one of the 120 said, 
you know, I don't think prayer is a big deal. We should do something else instead. No, they all came together, and with that one goal in mind, they had a unity amongst them. They prepared for revival with a united purpose to pray. God is glorified by us when we, as his body, are living and functioning in unity. There's a terrible tragedy when the church is split by divisions and dissension and contention. Paul said in Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice what preceded unity. There's humility, there's gentleness, there's patience, there's kindness. All of those things are the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the evidence the Spirit produces in us. We have the poured out Spirit filling us. We are to be bearing the fruit of His presence, showing the evidence of His presence within us. Those attitudes are the singular fruit of the Spirit. Now remember, unity does not mean uniformity, right? We only sing old hymns. We only sing new songs. We only wear suits and ties, or we never wear suits and ties, praise the Lord. We only come and sit in a circle. We only, it's, that's not what unity is. Because you look down at the military barracks, right? They all walk out, everyone, left, then right, left, then right. They all walk out, same uniform, same hat, same shape, same tilt, same haircut, same everything. You can enforce uniformity, that can be an external crushing in to change us, to make us like that. But unity, genuine, biblical, spiritual unity starts within. As the Spirit of God has an influence in our lives to change us and conform us to one person, Christ. So I can have a unity with a brother. I like old hymns and new hymns. And I can have unity with somebody who only likes old or only likes new because our one thing in, pro in common must never be musical style. It must be Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what unity comes from. And brothers and sisters, we're crying out and we're pleading with God for a revival amongst us. There needs to be a unity amongst us that says we have one thing in common. It's Christ and we're all striving to be like Christ and we're all striving to glorify Christ in everything we do. When we do that, we will have that unity. Because it's not about the externals. It's about Christ. It's about Christ and him crucified. The Spirit of God working in our hearts as we submit to Him, that's what brings unity. It's having the one thing in common. It's having Christ in common. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus and the Scripture takes very seriously the one who brings in and erodes and tears away at the unity of the body of Christ. Listen to what the Bible says in Titus 3. Verses 10 11 says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
The disciples, with the Holy Spirit operating among them, were united. They had one accord. And the terrible thing that happens when a person comes into a church and starts tearing up and striving and causing dissension and disunity amongst a church, the Lord Jesus deals with that in the most harshest terms. The ordinary root of church discipline, as outlined in Matthew 18, is in a sense put aside. That person is warned once and twice, and literally they have nothing more to do with him. He is put out summarily. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, it is. And that's how God deals with disunity and division amongst his people. He is zealous for the unity of the Spirit in amongst the body of Christ. The disciples with one spirit were operating among them, were united. They had one accord. They devoted themselves to prayer. Brothers and sisters, they prepared for revival by living and functioning with a unity of purpose. We must strive with all our hearts for unity in the spirit. Not uniformity, but unity. They prepared for revival by living. There's so much more I want to say about that, but I'm just going to move on. The last one. We prepare for revival by devotion to prayer. Notice again, verse 14, he says that they were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer. You want to do a neat study this afternoon? Go home, get your Bible out, get a concordance out, and look up devotion and prayer in the book of Acts. It's neat to see how often they were together and how much that early church devoted themselves to prayer. The disciples were devoted to Christ in corporate prayer. The word there for devoted means to persist. It actually means to persist obstinately. Now, I've never heard obstinance as a good thing, but here's what the scripture talks about. They were so devoted that they persisted into a sense of being awkward and obnoxious. They just wouldn't let go. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful or anything, but the idea that comes to my mind when I think of that is like a dog with a bone, right? And he's got his favorite bone, and the master grabs onto that bone and starts to pull the bone out of the dog's mouth, and the dog just, and you know, and hangs on for a grip of death, and you can literally pick the bone in the dog right up in the air, and the dog is so convinced that that bone is his, he will not let go of the bone to drop to the ground. He hangs onto it. He's persistent. It's an obstinate persistence to hang on to that bone. There is an obstinate persistence with the disciples. They were pleading. They were devoted to Christ in prayer. Brothers and sisters, we need that sort of devotion to prayer. I put that story in the the bulletin for good reason. Not to berate Not to browbeat people. That's not going to help anything. But brothers and sisters, I I can't let the moment pass by. I can't let the opportunity pass by by without making a plea for all of us. There is so much need in this church. There's so much need in our community, in our nation, around the world. But brothers and sisters, I say this as gently as I can. We have, by and large, put aside the prayer meeting. I'm not trying to make you feel bad or guilty. I'm trying to just gently call you and summon you with all I can. Come and pray. I think it's remarkable that the Lord Jesus Christ never taught his disciples to preach, but he taught them to pray on several occasions. He walked into the temple 
and with a whip of cords and in a scene that young guys just love. He grabbed onto the tables and started flipping over tables and driving out the animals and driving out the money changers, and he was angry. There was a holy, righteous zeal for his father's house, and the great condemnation that he lowered is, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. It was supposed to be, it's designed to be a house of prayer. Some of you may know the name uh, Jim Simbala. Uh, there's a, they were, I think they're still in ministry. I'm not sure. They'd be getting pretty old if they were. They operated in New York City in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, I think it's called. And uh, he was a pastor of two churches. And he would travel into the city and he would preach at one church. He would drive for about an hour and preach at the other church. He would stay most of the afternoon, preach the evening service, and drive back to the first church and preach the evening service. And then he would go home at the end of the day. And they were, he was convinced in the one church that somebody was collecting all the offering. And as the collection was finished and going out the back door to be counted, the one counting said, one for me, one for the church, two for me, one for the church, three for me, one for the church. And, and there was no money. He was just so discouraged. And he went down to a fishing trip down in Florida with his, some friends. And on the back of this fishing boat, everybody went fishing at one end of the boat. And he said he went down to the far end all by himself. And he's standing there watching the waves go by. And he just started to cry. And he cried and he cried and he poured out his heart to God. And God gave him one simple message. Call the church to pray. So he went back to New York City. He got the church together and he said, listen. If you can only make it to one service a week, if you're so busy you can't be here more than once a week, you come to the prayer meeting. And their prayer meeting changed. It went from a handful of people to 20 and then 100 and then 300. And now every single day, 24 hours of the day, 365 days of the year, prayer teams meet in the Metropolitan Tabernacle and they pray around the clock. Their prayer meeting went to 1,100 people coming together every week to pray. And the guy with the, who was helping himself to the funds, he came up the front one day crying his eyes out. God had worked greatly in his heart, and he realized what he had done and confessed fully. And they saw people changed. They saw revival come into that church. Now, I wouldn't agree with everything Jim Simbala teaches in his theology. I think he has some things a little bit off. But I do know this. The call to prayer, the devotion to prayer that marked the early church brought in the Holy Spirit's being poured out. It brought in the greatest revival in the history of mankind. Brothers and sisters, there is a desperate need for us to be devoted to prayer. They prayed for revival on a scale never seen before. And I know, brothers and sisters, I know that we pray as individuals, but I'm going to say this, and I know this is going to rub some of you the wrong way, but listen, there is something so sweet that when we get together as a body to pray together, it is tremendously powerful. John Piper said this way, he said, prayer is the purest display of faith that we can exercise because prayer simply says, Father, help. Father, we need help. I need help. Father, please help us. And we lift up our voices and our hearts in prayer to the living God. And I'll tell you, as a personal testimony, sitting in that prayer meeting on Wednesday nights and listening to some pray, and I'll say it this way even, 
Guys, we think we're tough and we think we're big men sometimes, but when you listen to a woman pray and she begins to weep before the Lord and pour out her heart before the Lord in a mean like that, it breaks you down to a very small size. Tremendously powerful. And brothers and sisters, we have that, I'll call it a tool for lack of a better word, at our disposal. A devotion to come together and pray. These disciples, these 120 in that upper room, the Spirit of God among them, not yet feeling and sealing them, as it comes in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to prayer. And of course, as we wrap up, the greatest example of all these things is always the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to take your Bibles and flip over to Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 35 to 38. This is one of those great scenes out of the Lord's life. And I can't read these verses without just a, a sense of guilt. I don't think anybody in ministry, anybody in the Christian faith can read this without feeling like, you know what, that touches, that cuts a bit. Mark 1, verses 35 to 38, the Bible says, speaking of Jesus, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon, those who were with him, searching for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The end of a long, busy, exhausting day of ministry. He's been in the temple, or the synagogue, sorry. He's been casting out demons. He goes into the, Peter's house, and he cures Peter's mother-in-law. And as the sun goes down, and Sabbath closes, all the city piles up at the doorway to meet with Jesus. And they're banging on the door saying, we know he's in there. He can help us. And Jesus walks out, and the Bible tells us, if we look closely, that when Jesus does healing and cleansing and all those kinds of work, he feels the power go out of him. There is a draining sense. And Jesus labors for hours after dark, healing and cleansing and so on with all those people. And yet, yeah, I know what I would have done around about 9.30, when the sun's long up, I would have been rubbing my eyes and looking for the largest cup of coffee I could find. And yet the Bible says, very early in the morning, while it's still dark. And I can imagine those, uh, the people of town, they're sleeping on the ground outside the door so he can't get away from them, so he can get a hold of them as soon as he comes out again. And he steps very carefully past those sleeping bodies and he heads off into the distance, into a lonely place, and there he is found in prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, enjoying perfect harmony and fellowship with his Father and the Holy Spirit, he needed to pray. He is the man who is God, truly God and truly man. But I will add this, he's also a man of God that prayed with great devotion to his father. Luke 11, verse 1, another verse there in your sheet. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. What was it? What was it? What to, to watch him pray. 
I don't know whether he was kneeling on the ground. I don't know whether he was standing there. I don't know whether maybe he was even sitting with his hands lifted up. I don't know what he was doing. But I know one thing from sure. As you read that passage, the disciples were watching him. And there was something about the way that he prayed. The intimate communion, the fellowship, the way his heart was lifted up to his father. The disciples came up and said, Lord, teach us how to pray like that. I think I told you before, I went and been to Bible college and, and got a, a degree of some kind. And did all kinds of courses in exegesis and hermeneutics and theology and history and all that. You know they didn't offer one single course, how to pray like Jesus? Why not? He taught his disciples to pray more than once. And yet we send guys into ministry without one single course, how to pray like Jesus. And you know what? I think the reason why they marched back into Jerusalem and they marched up those stairs in the upper room and without with one accord, I don't think they even had a discussion about it. They began to get down on their knees and lift up their hands and their hearts to God and they began to cry out to God. And for seven long days, they pleaded with God in prayer for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They were devoted to prayer. Why? Because they saw the need of it? Yes, but even more, they'd seen Jesus pray. We were reading the story of the Lord Jesus in the garden and as he's praying. And I know I, there's a part of me that can't understand the disciples that fell asleep. There's a part of me that falls asleep at nighttime easily. They can also understand it. But there's a part of me that says, why didn't they stay awake to watch? Surely they knew that something was up, that something was changing. And yet they fell asleep. We know that Jesus, in Luke 6, before he chose his disciples, the Bible says he went up to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 whom he named apostles. The situation was so grim, even for Jesus, that he spent the night in prayer. That's how come they devoted themselves to prayer. They'd seen him praying like that. Listen, brothers and sisters, there is a desperate need for revival. And it's not just out there, it starts in here for every one of us. The older I get, the more I walk with the Lord, driving into church this morning with my boys in the car and thinking about my life before the Lord and my spiritual state and crying out in my heart silently as I drove along. Lord, make it real in me. Make it real. There's a need for us in every single part of this church to be revived. As the psalmist said, revive us according to your word. Revival that's, that burns hot the love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Revival that burns hot in love for each other. A revival that brings us devoted to the Lord in prayer and devoted to the scriptures, preaching the gospel, teaching the Bible, making disciples. We want to see that place reached for Christ. Not just because it's obedience to Christ, but because out of love for Christ, we want to see others come to know him too. Brothers and sisters, they prepared. They prepared for revival by obedience. So what do we need to do today? to live a life of obedience before the Lord. What do you need to change? 
They prepared by being of one accord, devoted to unity. Brothers and sisters, strive in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you can do it to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let go of petty jealousies and the pride that tears down the body of Christ. Nothing will tear the church apart faster from the inside out than pride amongst the body of Christ. And I say that to my own shame because I know how often I act and think and speak far too quickly in pride. They prepared by submitting themselves to the Word of God. We'll look at that next week. But lastly, and I want to just, I want this to sink in. They prepared by devotion, persistence, obstinate persistence in prayer to God. They would not let go of God until God answered their prayer. Brothers and sisters, I pray, I plead with you all, with us all, to hear what the Word of God would say to each of us and to bring ourselves in submission to it and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing one more song uh, before we close. Would you stand please and we'll pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks, O God, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And Father, thinking about those three things, he obeyed you perfectly and fully fully and unwaveringly. And Father, we remember those words, let this cup pass from thee, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Father, he couldn't even finish the sentence with immediately reverting to your will first. Father, we give you thanks. We rejoice this morning that our Savior was obedient all the way to death on a cross. Father, we cry out to you this morning that you would work in every single heart in a room. Father, from the pulpit to the back door. That each of us would be challenged deeply within our hearts to consider our own lives before you. And what needs to be changed, what needs to be confessed and put away, what needs to be sought out and put on, as in the new man. Father, we pray the Spirit of God would give us no rest and give us no peace. And Father, until we turn and we obey. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in every single heart and life in this room. Father, too, for the unity that was so prized by Paul and the writers, so prized by you in Scripture. Father, impress deeply upon our hearts the need for unity, not uniformity, but unity. Father, we pray that you would make us each like the Lord Jesus Christ a little bit more every day. Father, we pray, too, for this area of prayer Lord, both in our private lives, but also as a corporate body, as Noble Park Baptist Church, Father, we pray, we cry out to you, O God, that you would plant within every single one of us a devotion to prayer, an unwavering persistence in prayer, crying out to the living God to see souls saved, to see men and women changed, to see this neighborhood reached with the gospel. 
Father, we ask you these things and we plead with you for them in Jesus' name because he alone deserves the answer. Amen.